Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. They have any edition of any game, even out-of-print products. With Noble Knight, you can sell back your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online over 24 7 on the web they have dnd and other cool rpgs any edition any game even out of print products and at a discounted price that's out of control have a bunch of old game products collecting dust dangerous allergens noble knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore looking at you indiana jones rpg so go to noblenight.com and get by it and sell it take back your life and tell them the tone show sent you Today, we're talking about some recent staff cutbacks at Wizards of the Coast and the Unearthed Arcana Eberron Supplement for 5th Edition D&D. Let's meet the very special panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Who is the greatest Forgotten Realms NPC? Vegas Lancaster, let's start with you. I'm going to preface this by saying that my experience with the realms is limited to reading a few Drist novels. And instead of just saying Drist, I'm going to say Jarlaxle, a different drow. Uh, (laughs) Jarlaxle is really cool. Uh, He dresses in bright colors and he's, he's evil, but more of a neutral evil. And he carries many magic items. That's a he, good answer. That is a good I, answer. I, I consider Jarl Axel, so I approve. <laughs> nice. Glad to hear it. I would say he is the Rolling Stones to the Drizzed Beatles. That's there what I would go. say. <laughs> oh, God. You just compare Drizzed to the Beatles? Yeah, man. For oh. sure. Jarl Axel loves paint it black. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dave Gibson, who is the greatest Forgotten Realms NPC? I thought about cheating and picking one of the NPCs that was in Ravenloft from the realms. I'm actually going to go with uh, Dragonbait, the uh, Sorile Paladin from like the old second edition books. Just uh, I, I, that was my deep cut pick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a backup. I have a backup. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> I didn't have a backup, so I'm glad. Yes. It's I'd like because he was back in the second edition days, back when only humans could be paladins. And he was like one of the other races that could be paladins, which is kind of neat. He can like smell emotions or something. And just it's such a very different character. It kind of makes like it seem like it was trying to be the new dress. Like, here's a unfamiliar race that's mostly monsters. We're going to make one into an unexpected player character. But it worked. It was fun. <laughs> that answer makes me smell like baked bread. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will which, remind the which, panel, which, it's totally okay to have the same answer. I know, but I don't question. like it. <laughs> <laughs> baked bread, by the way, was the sorial smell of anger. What that's I mean, wouldn't you want to make people angry then so you could smell some delicious baked bread? Or sad because it smells like roses. Ah, but yeah, that seems counterintuitive. (laughs) 
What does happiness smell like? Dog poop? And so Less it's... Lemons. Oh, oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> Those are the three that I wrote down in my notes now that it doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. Well, Jeff Greiner, who is your favorite Forgotten Realms NPC? I will go with my backup then. I really like the symbol. Um, she's one of these the seven sisters, a chosen of Mistra. Uh, her real name, of course, is Alastra Silverhand, but you all knew that. You know, uh, and, it, and, and sometime... Um, companion i guess of elminster uh so but she tends to be a lot more i don't know badass like she's not afraid to to throw a fireball into a, a pack of kobolds who could really be taken out by a magic missile you know she's the one who blows stuff up when 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 mistra needed somebody to go in and, and tear up hell because elminster was was banished there the symbol is the person that mistra sent all right and sam dylan who is yeah. the greatest Forgotten Realms NPC? None of them. Oh. None of them. <laughs> Not a single one. Wow. <laughs> uh, Controversial. <laughs> my <laughs> my, my uh, disinterest, I won't say dislike, disinterest in the realms is, is widely known on the internet, I think. Uh, uh, I, I don't care about the realms. I, I greatly respect Ed Greenwood. I think he's great. And I think the world that he created was great. And I think all that's great. But uh, I just don't use a world with 30 years of canon in, in, in my gaming. And I just can't be interested in it. I would have to spend so much time studying up and practicing. I just don't. I just don't. Right? Yeah. Well, next time you're on the show, I will ask. Who is the greatest uh-huh. Mistara NPC? <laughs> and you will be the only one with an answer. <laughs> with an answer yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's Bargle. Everybody knows about Bargle, too. So. I didn't know he was from Mistara. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, let's get into the week's news. First, let's talk about some people who were let go at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, it was made public by Chris Sims on his Twitter account and later on in some internet articles on various RPG news sites. That D&D editor Chris Sims, along with editor Jennifer Clark Wilkes, uh, have both been let go from Wizards of the Coast. They both worked on 5th edition. I have to say that it seems like every time a new edition of D&D comes out, some people on the R&D team are let go. What do you guys think about this happening? I mean, I really liked Chris Sims' work, um, so so I'm definitely bummed to see him go. Not that he's leaving the industry. I'm sure he'll he'll still be making and creating things and, and doing wonderful stuff, I hope. That that's the case. But are you guys uh, bummed out about this news? And what do you think this means sort of overall? What what sort of picture does this paint for you of Wizards of the Coast? Jeff, let's start with you since you seem to have a lot of information. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm bummed out about it in the same way I'm bummed out that I'm going to have to do big standardized tests in school this year, you know? Um, <laughs> I, it, it's unfortunate and it happens and and, I, and it's happened so much at this point that it's it's an unfortunate just fact of working at Watsi. You know, I would have at one point in my life said, you know what, working at at Watsi uh, on the D&D brand, that would be a dream job. And I decided years ago, uh, no, it wouldn't because there's no job stability. Like nobody is safe. They get rid of people. They lose people constantly. There are a lot of people who were there for a long time though. Kim Mohan, Bruce Cordell, I could name several more, but there's a, there's a lot of people that were, were really long lived at Watsi as well. There were. Well, and and most of them, you know, the two that you mentioned, um, did not start at Watsi. They started at TSR. 
That's so right. they've been there that long. Um, and, and this seems to be a Watsy trend, mm-hmm. um, not, a, not necessarily a D&D trend. Do they lay off their Magic the Gathering people every Christmas? Not that I know of, but I don't keep up with that industry very well. Well, then it's not a Watsy thing. It's, it is a D&D thing. Oh, well, okay. It's a, it's a, it's a D&D at Watsy thing. I should have clarified that because I was just trying to make the point that it, it didn't seem to happen. Right, it's the not first, a PSR the first two things. Yeah. yeah, it is something that that just certainly is a, a little disheartening, especially because it's kind of like that's the last place you would go as a designer for tabletop RPGs. Presumably, right? Watsi is one of the ones that pays the best. They're top tier. You know, they they make the granddaddy of all role playing games. Um, so it is. It must be a little disheartening when you have that dream job and then lose it for, you know, what seems to just be sort of a, a revolving door kind of cycle. Uh, Sam, what do you make of all this? Well, I'm, my thoughts are very much in line with with Jeff's. I, I think that it's an unfortunate pattern that Wizards of the Coast uses, and we've seen it several years in a row now. And uh, I think it's really sad. It's really unfortunate. And and the problem with it is. And and you know I brought up the point that they 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 do or did have a lot of people with with a long time a, a long run a bit a big amount of longevity, but the thing is that when you lose people who've been around for fifteen years or who've been around for ten years, they have a, a certain amount of institutional knowledge how things work and how things are done and how the game what the history is and what things work and what things don't work and. While you always want to get, you want to have an infusion of fresh ideas and fresh eyes and and fresh sort of energy. You also need to keep in mind the things that have already been tried and didn't work, and why they didn't work, so that you don't make the same mistakes again mm-hmm. as you move on with your company. And if you just keep churning through people, number one, it makes people like me on the outside who've never worked for an RPG creator. Um, look at that and just think wow they suck their people in and they ex- they sponge out all of their creativity and they wring them out and then they kick them out the door and i mean on the other hand i've heard from a ton of people that that have worked at wizards before that it was one of the best places they've ever worked mm-hmm. they had the best time working they loved what they were doing they loved all their coworkers everybody almost to a person was was really respectful and nice and great to work with and very professional but yet you know every christmas would come around and they would have this like doom because who knows who's yeah. getting the axe this year at least they and waited a month this year yeah and that's a horrible thing to live under you know, regardless of what you're what you're doing or where you work or whatever, that's a horrible thing. And I know it happens in other places, not in this industry, but that's a horrible cycle to have to be subject to, especially if you're one of the people who's worked there for 15 years. Can you imagine every December wondering, okay, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, who, which of my friends is going to be laid off or am I going to be laid off? That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know that's Chris Sims had started working with them freelance in, in 2005, you know, so you're mm-hmm. talking about someone who's they've been there for 10 years, uh, right. losing their job. And, and I think that's, you know, that's difficult. And certainly we don't know all of the inner workings that are, are happening there. A lot of this is speculative. All of that should be prefaced. We have no idea mm. what oh, exactly sure. went on. Because we do see this cycle, it seems to be like it was about more than just Chris Sims and Jennifer Clark Wilkes. I, I feel like the D&D team is so small, you would think they wouldn't need to lay anybody off. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think those two may have been like the entire editorial department. Because yeah. uh, Jennifer so, was, was the senior editor. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Are we going to see a bunch of C-Page XX in the next 
fifth edition releases. Guess we'll find out. <laughs> so, Dave Gibson, what do you think about all of this? Going back through history, if you in the last fifteen years, uh, two thousand four, uh, six, seven, and fourteen are the only years we have not seen a layoff on the D and D team from Wizards of the Coast. And doing some quick googling while everyone else is. Uh, was talking, I didn't see it as nearly as many references during the Magic the Gathering run. Well, and looking, listening to those years, 2014 didn't have a bunch of layoffs because 2013 basically axed the entire 4E team. <laughs> yeah. And mean, there was a honestly, bunch of retirements like Kim Owens. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so there's the asterisks of those four dates. So, what do you make of all that, Dave? Like, what, what sort of picture does that paint for you? I really think that Wizards of the Coast is not happy with the amount of money D&D is bringing in. Just mm. putting that bluntly, I don't think they'll ever be happy with it, which is sad. Well, since they're only putting out one book a year, maybe two, you probably really don't need a full, two full-time editors on staff, being mm. cynically. It's D&D is not producing nearly as much content, so they don't need as much staff on the RPG team. And I think they're well, just and, licensing and, out more and more content. Yeah, I'd say they're licensing out a lot of the work. So, I mean, they're editing, but they're editing other people's work that have already that's already gone through a round of editing. You yeah, know? and you can just hire a freelancer for that mm-hmm. or have them, the, the, the other company you're licensing out provide their own editors to do most of it i know that's what colba press did is they hired their own editors yeah and you do have the three writers on staff who were there do the development i'm sure they can kind of do a little bit of editing passes on each other's work for submitting it so it kind of makes sense in a cynical sort of way but it'd be nice if they weren't constantly shrinking down the team to the point where well it's it's almost non-existent and incapable of producing any product Sure. Well, and it's interesting, right, that a lot of the people who are now getting to touch these products who are Watsy outsiders were at one point Watsy insiders. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the guys at Sasquatch, uh, David Noonan and everybody uh, certainly worked at Watsy at one point. You know, Wolfgang Bauer worked for Watsy. He left of his own accord, but still. Um, Steve, Steve Winter as well, who Steve helped Watsy or helped uh, Wolfgang with that first run of books. Yeah, so they're doing the same job, probably for reduced pay and without any benefits. So Dave, can I ask you to clarify, do you think Watsy's not happy or do you think Hasbro is not happy? It's uh, Wizards of the Coast is its own separate entity. They probably have to mm-hmm. report to uh, report to Hasbro at the, the bottom line, but as long as they're turning some sort of profit. Uh, Wizards of the Coast is really the Magic the Gathering company. They're mm-hmm. like 200 people at Wizards of the Coast, and of that... 20 work at on D&D, 90% of the company, is entirely unrelated to D&D. And Magic the Gathering makes an order of magnitude more money. So you take all the money D&D makes, multiply that by 10, that's what Magic the Gathering pulls in every year. Uh, yeah, and, it, and it's worth, uh, as, a, as a line of distinction, because I've had some conversations with the, the, the head of Watsi, and I've been trying to get him on for an interview for years, and... That's a tough nut to crack. Um, But and the way he puts it is that in the U.S., magic is their moneymaker. I mean, these aren't his words, but I'm summarizing. Uh, But uh, it's not their only moneymaker in the in Japan. It's Kaijudo that is a a big moneymaker for him. Sure. Yeah, so neither of which is an RPG game. Yeah, they're so both like, they're both collectible card games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Collectible card game company that just kind of has this like publishing wing. It's like if uh, if Wizards of the Coast was a person, their spleen would be D anD. d Right. <laughs> And you can live without a spleen. <laughs> well, and it sort of explains this new business model of a lot of licensing, right? Because maybe if, hey, maybe we can capitalize on D&D if we can get a great video game or a great movie or a great board game, kind of the same way 
comic book companies keep their comic books around so that they can have, you know, the the movies and the video games and everything else that actually makes money as opposed to the comic books, which don't make them money really anymore. Vegas Lancaster, you know, I know when we first sat down to to discuss this podcast, you said you were feeling a little uncomfortable uh, discussing this topic. So I certainly don't want to push you. Um, but is there anything that you have? Are there are there any opinions, especially after listening to everybody else talk that that you feel you want to share? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's hard for me to speculate about why People that I don't know have been let go from their jobs. Uh, I know they both do great work, and I'm sure they'll both have, you know, not that difficult a time uh, finding an opportunity to do great work on other stuff. Uh, so good for them in the future. I, I don't think it doesn't make sense for them to have layoffs. I mean, as as fans, you know, we don't want to see people we like losing their jobs and we don't want to see the property that we love not being treated with the respect that we have for it uh but you know the the core books have come out and i think there's less work that they have to go around and i expect uh more work to be done by freelancers for future 5e products i don't like seeing people lose their jobs but it makes sense to me just given the context of the core rulebooks being finished and the launch being pretty much done. Because I think the cycle that we see is is traditionally that there is a, a swelling and a shrinking that happens in the company around edition launches. So just because they're shrinking now doesn't mean there's still not opportunities for them to swell at some point. If the the be, well, because and I've had Watsi people explain this to me that the cycle goes, they go a lot of they they go to almost entirely freelancing and the the in house staff shrinks and then the quality of the product um, declines as a result and so they they change their mind and they do less freelancing and start hiring more <laughs> in house people and it just keeps going back and forth and so just because they're small now doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Uh, if the cycle continues, then it it it'll grow again. My, my bigger concern for the game that I love and want to keep playing, um, you know, ignoring the, the unfortunate situation of, of people I know not having jobs anymore, um, my bigger concern is the long-term health of, of the brand. I see a lot of people who used to do a lot of work for Watsi, either freelance or, or um, on staff, uh, who are discussing these layoffs uh, and discussing this this job posting that they have of an opening and, and saying, yeah, that used to be the dream. And I, I've applied for those jobs before and this is what you can expect. And I would never do it because year after year after year, people are constantly losing their jobs and that's not, just not what I want to do. And unlike – uh, you know, in the third edition days, um, there's some some different competition now, right? If I want to work on a D and D like game that's big and popular and produces a lot of things and doesn't constantly lay people off, <laughs> I can go to Paizo, you know, mm-hmm. and I can I can do that work. Um, I can go to to Cobalt Press. I can go to uh, you know I can go to Sasquatch. Whatever. There are other opportunities now that don't require me to go to. Watsi, my concern is that the top tier talent are no longer interested in being at Watsi, that that isn't an end goal for them anymore, that the people who want to work at Watsi are not going to be the people who who really know the industry and have been doing it for a long time. It's going to be the new up-and-comers who 
are looking for an opportunity. And hey, working on D and D sounds great because they haven't really dug into what's happening in the industry the last the last several years. Uh, so my concern is for the longer health of the brand because uh, you know you're they're not competitive and they're not going to if if there's this constant fear of losing your job and so you're not going to get the the top tier talent. The the other school of thought is if they keep farming things out then they will have the top talent because the top talent is at the places that, you know, like you said, Cobalt Press and Sasquatch and that kind of thing. They just ask them to make the adventure paths and that sort of thing. When, when they farm out to, to Paizo, then I will be sold that that is a long-term uh, feasible strategy. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, Paizo's eating their lunch on, 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 on talent. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, they're, yeah. they're the ones getting the, the, the big, the people that, have, that came up through the third edition period. Paizo's picking them up and now now it's not just because Paizo is still doing the third edition basic mechanics you know that was sort of the the way it was right it was a bunch of designers who didn't want to switch over to a new system and so they went with Paizo Uh, but now I feel like people are coming up through Paizo and through those mechanics Um, and I think it's I think they're 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 eating the 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 lunch talent you know yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see where all of this nets out. This certainly won't be the last conversation we have about this. So, and as the swelling and shrinking continues, uh, stick with us here on the roundtable yeah. because we're just always <laughs> swelling. So, uh, oh, that's swell. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Paizo has a much larger permanent staff um, than Dungeons and Dragons does, which oh, yeah. uh, it's really yeah, kind of surprising it's... to me. I, I yeah. I know a lot of people play Pathfinder, but uh, I, I just wonder about how the revenues work for that. I think I well, think Paizo has done a really um, brilliant thing business model wise with their subscription system. Um, so they have a bunch of people who spend monthly, and they know they're getting that income in, and they know they're always going to get that income in, and people are buying it because it's on a subscription, whether they think about it or not, they're just automatically buying it, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I've talked to a lot of Pathfinder people who are like, oh yeah, I've, I ended up buying five different adventure paths over the over the last couple of years, and I've played none of them, but you know I've, I'm subscribed, so I just keep getting them. So I think they they have a, a business model they've hit on, and, and a loyalty base that I think has uh, helped them a lot. I'm surprised it's, that Dungeons and Dragons doesn't have a subscription model like that. Like I had a insider account with Fourth Edition for a very that I didn't cancel much longer uh, than when I should have canceled, um, and I eventually did because obviously I'm not getting anything out of it now. Um, but it would be very easy for them to give me things in that manner. You also you had the subscription through Digital River. For Wizards of the Coast, because Wizards of the Coast is allergic to touching your money directly. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so the problem with the subscription model is they need to set it up with uh, a, di- a distributor who could get books to you, which is problematic. Yep. And I do know that Paizo, the uh, team working just on the Pathfinder role-playing game, like the books, is larger than all the people working on D&D currently, like the entire brand. But Paizo is also producing a lot more content. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things is you have the staff to produce the content you have. Like, sure. Interesting I'm- bit of trivia here. If you compare the amount of book, the, the pages of material Paizo produced last year for the Pathfinder role-playing game, it was more than TSR produced during the height of second edition, excluding Dungeon and Dragon magazines. It's wow. Paizo's churning it out. 
Oh yeah, they are. And and, and, they, and part of me worries. I mean, I don't study their their model as closely as I do D and D at this point. But part of me worries for them as well that that that's a bubble that's got to burst someday. Um, I think the comparison is that I think Paizo has about fifty employees, and twenty five of them are consistently working just on RPG stuff that's actually creating content. And uh, that's I think that I think that's what I read on the there's an Ian World thread where they discuss this entire thing. Um, but uh, which is 25 people compared to 13 or 14 putting out, you know, they put out one, you know, 92 page book per month that's full color, full spread for each adventure path that they have, plus their hardbound books they put out at least two a year. Plus, they have the mapping section where they put out a map pack with like 12 individual 4 by 8 sheets of mapping. Plus, they put out a new flip map. And they've got their fingers in all kinds of other stuff, though. Like, they're, they have the MMO going on, and they've, you know, they've talking about doing different stuff and branching out their brand as well. I think that um, it's, really, it's a really interesting case, right? I mean, you're right. Is the bottom ever going to fall out of that game? Is the bottom ever going to fall out? I don't know. I would hate to have, you know, Paizo end up being like a hundred employees and then all of a sudden they start laying off everybody at Christmas, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's gonna happen because I, I don't they didn't set up their their jobs to flow like that. The cycle of their work is much different. Mm-hmm. And I Lisa Stevens is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, she's not the only one. I don't want to just give her credit her her and only her, but she's got a great management team apparently with her as well. And but they're they're just doing a bang up job. And I think that, you know, that I don't see the bottom falling out of that. I I would see if they start to decline, they're going to act quickly to stop that decline and to make it so that they don't have to let people go, if if ever possible. Why don't we go ahead and move on to Eberron? The first Unearthed Arcana article came out with Mike Merles writing a a five-and-a-half-page supplement for the Eberron game. He goes on to say that these rules, we should be considered sort of playtest rules. They're not final, and they look to the DM to help adjudicate things that are unclear and that sort of thing. But all in all, you know, Eberron is my favorite setting, and it was great to see this update uh, come out, that people can sort of play their, their games and, you know, continue with an Eberron campaign or start an Eberron campaign in 5th edition if they want. It's got rules for races. We got the Warforged. We got the Changeling. We got the Shifter. Uh, no Kaleshtar, but they said the Kaleshtar will be coming once Psionics come. Uh, they have a wizard tradition of Artificer. Uh, as you know, the Artificer class in 3rd edition and 4th edition was something that went with Eberron. Uh, they have rules for action points, which Eberron first introduced in 3.5, and they also have Dragon Mark feats. So it was great to see all of this information come to us in a PDF. You know, not very much uh, flavor, a a little bit of fluff, but mostly very crunchy information. And they point you to D&D Classics, where if you want to find out more about Eberron, you can buy all sorts of Eberron source books and PDFs on the D&D Classics link, which if you are going to go check out, go through (laughs) the Tome Show's website at thetomeshow.com. You make me smell like lemons. <laughs> so, um, why don't we start, Vegas? Let's start with you. Uh, I know that you love Baroning it up, just like I love Baroning it up. I do. I love Eberron. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed this PDF. Uh, we were talking on a previous Tome Show, uh, wondering what the Unearthed Arcana feature uh, was going to be like, and it's it's definitely. Um, 
Uh, rules. That's what it is. Uh, here's here's rules for how to play as some different races and uh, uh, how to play with dragon marks. Um, like you said, no very little flavor text at all, uh, which is cool. I, I think the idea with this is you know, in the history of D&D, Eberron was released fairly recently. Um, you know, people know the campaign setting. Uh, I'm sure there's people who want to play 5th edition Eberron, and now they can get started on it. Uh, or without having to house rule a bunch of stuff anyway. Uh, I think it's cool. It's a fine little PDF. Go download it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's got uh, most of the things you would need to play an Eberron game. Certainly things like the Kaleshtar and, and that sort of thing missing uh, might hurt some games, but I think it's it's there. And if you consider the world of Eberron unchanging, which it really hasn't changed all that much since its 3.5 release, you're really able to play a fifth edition game and and make it feel hearty i know the uh level one through 30 game we played in fourth edition uh you know this would be all the information i would need to convert that game uh what do you think dave i'm torn <laughs> it's i think it's a great article i think the crunch is okay i think it's some of the races might need a little bit more work or love but it looks like poo I mean, they could have put in some recycled art, a little background texture. There's the the complete absence of flavor text, like everyone mentions. Like they they didn't even try to make it look like a race entry, so you couldn't print it out on a color printer and like stick the pages in your player's handbook, and it look it fits in perfectly. It's no, it's it's a nice start. Needs more. <laughs> Other than that, I, I love the the idea of doing it like this. I love the how you can update various campaign settings with this quick little document and then direct people to the PDFs. It's a great starting point, <laughs> but just a little bit more love. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's supposed to look like a finished product. I think the I I would guess that they're going to release an an Eberron guide. Uh, in the somewhat near future. And I imagine they're kicking rules around the office and this is kind of, Hey, here's what we've come up with so far. I think, I think it's not supposed to look nice. And I think you're right. Uh, Vegas, I think, um, this, I think is, it's even pre playtesting. Um, you know, it's the early, early sort of look at what they're, what they're doing or thinking of or something to tide us over. As as a playtester, I cannot tell you the kind the, the the things I am working on, but I can tell you I have not seen this. So I think this is pre playtesting um, sort of look at at Ebron. Historically, these sorts of articles from from Mike Merles and from James Wyatt in the past, um, and even John Shinnehetti to to some degree when he was still there, um, have for a long time been sort of an indicator of what they're working on. Right now, of course, that was of course, leading up to the core books. But if that plays out, um, I, I see that this is doing one of two things. There's Keith Baker, the creator of Eberron, has worked really hard to raise a lot of clamor to try to build up support to get Watsy to do something with Eberron for fifth edition. Um, he did all kinds of stuff to try to get attention for it and social media things and all kinds of activities that he's done to try to get people to make a bunch of noise to get Watsy to really look at at doing a fifth edition version of Eberron. Um, so is this a, a way of them satiating those fans? 
like you wanted Eberron here. This is enough that you can now do something with Eberron, um, you know, and now we can forget about it for a while. Or is it the opposite? Is this a sign that they're thinking about and working on Eberron? Mm. Uh, which are two extremely different interpretations that I, I, I feel like are fairly valid. And I'm curious how people, what people think about them. Part of me when I first saw this was like, oh, this is to tide over all the people who are clamoring for Eberron. But then I was like, would they really? I mean, they've got this shrinking R&D team now. Do they really have the time to say, Mike, take a month and go work on something to tide people over? Or is this actually, are we seeing something very far out that, uh, you know, like, hey, you know, once we do Princes of the Apocalypse and maybe another adventure path, boom, you're going to see Eberron. And we're working on it now. Well, remember that the first words about the DMG and the first sort of releases of information or leaks of information about it were that they were going to have alternate races and classes in them. So, uh, you know, the Warforged was one of them, uh, and uh, the Kinder was another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those ended up getting cut from the DMG probably for page count reasons or space reasons. So I'm not sure that this little four and a half page thing indicates that they're actually working on a full on Eberron product right now. I think that this might have been an a set of alternative information that was being worked on for the DMG and then when they realized they'd have to cut it, they stopped working on it. Yeah. Now that's complete speculation. I really don't know. Sure. You know what'll be a good indicator is the next Unearthed Arcana article. Like if mm-hmm. if they come out and it's like here's Dragonlance then, right. you know, that'll be a good indicator. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if it comes out and they're like, oh, here's everything you need to play a campaign on the continent of Zendrick, then mm-hmm. right. that would be a, a great right. indicator that yeah. Eberron is coming. I really like the Artificer. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I the, the Artificer is one of the pieces that's traditionally sort of connected to Eberron or whatever. But I always mm-hmm. I've always liked the idea of, you know, a wizard who specializes in producing magical things. And I really like the way they did infuse potions. I really like that. I'm a little scared of infused weapons and armor. And the only reason I am is because, uh, you know, I run a relatively magic light game. And, uh, the you know, I, I'm of the idea that or the, of the, the belief that magic plus one weapon and plus one armor is extremely boring and that they're only really interesting weapons if they have a story and a backstory and a name and they do something cool. And so just to have a bunch of artificers running around that can make plus one and plus two items is, to me, problematic. You're right, um, but it's very Eberron. Eberron is very, it, it really is very high Eberron. magic. It, it, that's true. Yes, absolutely. I t- totally agree with that. And I love the concept of it. That 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 thing I would have to tweak, but I will definitely, I'm going to definitely, you know, put Artificer in my game. I mean, even Artificer in, even only this, makes sense if you live stage. in a world where there's lots and lots of magic, right? That's not true because, because of the way I run magic in my world, it's possible to have an Artificer and have it not be run run wild with magic. So, I was thinking when I was reading the Artificer description about how uh, artificer is like a great idea for fleshing out a magical world, but it's never a class that I would actually want to play. <laughs> yeah, I, I would never want to be the character who makes things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does make really good NPC fodder, but maybe not PC fodder. That's very true. Yeah, it feels like 
like more supporty than the cleric or bard. Like this, this is the guy who buffs the bard in the morning. You know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> is that a euphemism? <laughs> I really liked their interpretation of uh, action points because I think it sort of drives people to take those larger than life over the top moments. And because you use them or lose them, you know, it, people are sort of encouraged to spend them during their adventuring career rather than it's save an, It's them an interesting take on, on action points. I'm not sure if I like it. Uh, I think I'd have to pl- play it uh, and see how see how much it actually does encourage that. Yeah, it's closer to the uh, the third edition action points or the three five mm-hmm. action points that came out in Eberron. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and I really like that way of doing things. What did you guys think about the dragon marks? Uh, you know, you have a feat here that's essentially granting people spells, um, but there are already feats like that in the player's handbook. So, I, you know, I saw a lot of complaints about that online, like, oh, these are so overpowered and that kind of thing, but they don't it seem... It did like seem awfully good. Uh, especially because, like, in previous editions, uh, as I'm recalling, I, 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 I struggle to go all the way back to third. It was, to, in, to, go, to go from least to lesser to greater, it, it required taking more feats. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this one doesn't seem to. Well, but I think it, that's the, the 5e model, right? It's, it's like three feats crammed into one rather than... Well, right, because you don't get feats as often. Yeah, yeah. And they need yeah. to be equivalent to not taking a, a, an ability score increase. You know? Yeah, feats have to be really good to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, but looking at this, I'm like, some of these are really good. Um, then they're you know. worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if they're just really good because it's cool. Look at all the new options I get, or if it's really good, like this is going to break my game. Again, I, I think I'd have to play with it because they're all relatively low-level spells, and so that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I've now got a fighter who can cast Identify and never needs the wizard to figure out what the magic item is again, you know? I actually feel like they were just kind of like, what's an Eberron thing? Dragon marks. Great. Make a make a chart. <laughs> yeah, I kind of felt like that about the feat as well. Although listening to Jeff talk about having a fighter that can identify actually adds to, as we said about the artificer, well, in Eberron, that actually makes sense. Makes so mm-hmm. it does really, even though it half of me feels like it's kind of tacked on and half of me feels like, yeah, but it really fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also, I mean, my fighter being able to cast Identify once a day doesn't really worry me. And and it seems like, you know, like, you get the, the big spells, the greater Dragon Mark spells are really good, but you also don't get them until ninth level. You know, like Revivify, which is a third level spell that, you know, most clerics can cast at fifth, you have to wait uh, <clears throat> another four levels to be able to cast once. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't actually seem that overpowered to me when you take into account what Polar Master can do. Mm-hmm. It's actually uh, seems kind of cool to me too. Um, the houses that uh, control various magics uh, that are traded commercially in Eberron is a, a really neat thing to me. Uh, and this is a cool way of letting players be a part of those houses and really have the flavor of those houses without having to play a wizard or spellcaster. It's, it's problematic that it's a feat, which means you can't take it until fourth level, which means you have the least dragon mark only at fourth level. So you can't start play part of a dragon mark house. You, know, you start playing with the dragon mark house uh, with a, Dragon Mark that doesn't do anything 
Mm-hmm. Or you just spontaneously develop one. And unless you're a human, which can take yeah. a feat at first level. If you're mm-hmm. a variant human as well. Plus, you also only have the least dragon, you know, the least dragon mark uh, for one level, and then at fifth level it goes immediately to lesser. So it isn't that much of a gap between the first spells and the second spells. Mm-hmm. And what happens if you take the feat at say eighth level? All of a sudden, bam! You start with a lesser dragon mark, just skipping the step. Mm-hmm. It just seems a little, I don't know. Off, yeah, right. I think there's there's some tweaks that could happen there, and maybe as a DM for story, I would do that. Right, you can take dragon marks, but it has to either um, fit the story or happen before this level, sort of thing. Take pick less uh, points for your point by, or take a penalty to your dice rolling, yeah. mm-hmm. and you get the dragon mark at first level. Or if you're really nice, everybody gets a feat. That too, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice and balanced. <laughs> I, I found the shifter to be interesting because I mostly have um, a, a memory of like half of these, maybe two or, three, two. Two, or two or three of them. Did they create a whole bunch of new shifter types? Yeah. I only remember um, long tooth and razor claw, which razor are basically claw. dog and cat shifters. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. They got goats in here. What's going on? <laughs> these all uh, these and more actually were all in three, five supplements. Um, you know, I, supplements that I may not be remembering. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so the long tooth and razor claw have kind of been the default <laughs> when you first saw. But yeah, so that there are other ones that are uh, less well known in here. And it was interesting that they they chose to include all of these mm-hmm. sub races of shifter when it was like, whoa, we have wow. All of a sudden, we have the most options for the shifter race than we have for yeah. for any other race. You know. <laughs> Um, I actually really liked that. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but my uh, tendency towards optimization uh, prohibits me from playing a class uh, or a race that doesn't perfectly match its class uh, (laughs) as far as ability scores go. Uh, And the variety of shifters provides a variety of ability score bonuses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's four different bonus options there. There's no charisma or, or uh, intelligence yeah. uh, boost. No. Man, there's enough charisma classes. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there was. N- What's interesting about this, and I think we should notice that Keith Baker wasn't involved in this PDF at all, and he right. has come forth and said that you know. And one thing that he had been touting kind of beforehand on Twitter was that. He thought that maybe shifters shifting was going to be more of a cosmetic thing in fifth edition, and that you would always have the the benefits of mm. being a beast hide or whatever, and that shifting was just a thing that you cosmetically did and and did through role playing. You know, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, you know, if they do do more Eberron stuff, uh, hopefully they get Keith Baker involved, and and you know. Um, can realize his vision. Uh, we know from the playtest that Watsi is willing to change a lot of stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, none of this is final, final, but it is final for now. Well, what you just described, yeah. James, sounds like what they did with the changeling. And when you read the little blurb on the changeling, which is really tiny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly a cosmetic thing, you know, yeah. it's, it's for role playing. Yeah, it definitely is. And, yeah, I found the Warforged a little ho-hum, and it was interesting that none of them have ability score increases that match what we see in the player's handbook. It's all one to something and one to something else, not one to something and two to something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in the case yeah. of the Mountain Dwarf, two and two. 
you know mm-hmm. that that seemed weak to me as well and see that's that's one of the clues to me though that it's early the, oh. these this is early stuff that they were doing and then as soon as they realized it's not going to go oh. into the, one of the cores they set it aside yeah cuz if he designed if he just spent a few weeks to design this in house the you know recently he mm-hmm. would have had the the standard um, racial builds to to build from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I just know that when I think uh, Eberron races, it's about Warforged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and and I don't and 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 if I want to play an Eberron race, a, a, a uniquely Eberron race, I I always gravitate to Warforged. And I don't know that I'm that interested in playing this Warforged. Maybe if I had like the Warforged uh, attachments and things, then that make it might make it more interesting and engaging. But we don't so. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's an armor bonus, and you don't need to sleep. So, and you're immune to disease. That's pretty cool. You can walk on the bottom of the ocean to get places. Yeah. But I can get the not sleeping thing with an elf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you can't have a metal body as an elf. I do have a comment on the the changeling. I have seen uh, some discussions online that because it says you can polymorph into any humanoid um, that you've seen, that you gain the abilities of any humanoid you've seen. Because it doesn't, it doesn't say one way or another right. if it affects your stats. And I, I read it immediately as, well, it's just cosmetic. But mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people saying that, well, I, I see a, a mermaid. I should be able to grow a tail and breathe underwater. Or I see an Oroka. I should be able to fly. Well, huh. and to those people, I would say polymorph is not in italics, which would indicate it's- you should use the spell <laughs> description. But it's not. So it's cosmetic. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. If only they had an editor to clarify that point. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's decided then. Wizards of the Coast should hire a bunch more people and use them to design an Eberron player's handbook. Agreed. (laughs) Where can you be found, Vegas Lancaster? Uh, In Philadelphia on Friday nights with the N Crowd, uh, an improv comedy show. Check us out at phillyncrowd.com. That's right. Or on Twitter at Vegas Lancaster. Excellent. And Sam Dillon, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel or on RPG Musings, or you can check out my new podcast that I'm doing with a hot new podcast upstart. I think some of you have heard of. His name is James. (laughs) <laughs> the podcast is called the Bonus Action Podcast, and you can listen to it right here on the Tome Show's feed. I hear you carry that guy on your back. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> he's a young, young slacker. Those millennials a, know nothing. He's a he's a he's a young upstart. <laughs> well, uh, and it is a great podcast, and it's only fifteen minutes of your time, guys. So you should go check that one out. Uh, Dave Gibson, where can people find you? I'm DND Jester on Twitter, and I have a blog web comic, Five Minute Workday at 5MWD.com. And I, I don't think I've plugged my book yet. So I did a book on fantasy world building, Jester David's Guide to Fantasy World, world Building, which is available on DriveThruRPG. So. And also available on my bookshelf. You guys should check it out. It is a great <laughs> book. Jeff Greiner, where can people find you? Uh, usually in class or sitting in front of a computer typing papers. <laughs> That's where I live these days. But if you want to hear me, uh, I am uh, uh, occasionally on some shows over here at the Tome Show. Although I think you produce more more stuff these days than than I do, because um, you know I'm in class all the time. That's right. Jeff is changing the world and shaping minds for the future. So yeah, doing the most thankless job there is. Thank you. Very and much, and o- and also being uh, shaped as a student. Mm-hmm. So. 
people, we definitely want to know what you have to say about all of these topics and things we have discussed. So you can reach out to us at thetomeshow.com or any of the ways that these guys have expressed you may reach out to them. If you have a question, comment, concern, or topic you'd like to hear us discuss, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. And a quick shameless plug for me, please check out my blog, which is all about exploration age. It's the fifth edition world I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay. Every- I want I want everybody before you go, I want everybody to go to the tomeshow.com and go to the post for this episode. And in the post, I want to I want you to leave a comment that is your favorite Forgotten Realms character. We all <laughs> we all gave you ours. I want to hear all of yours. And just so you know, it's okay to have the same answer as someone else. <laughs> yeah, go team Jarla Axel. <laughs> it's also okay to say Alina or Bargle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Vegas, Dave, Sam, and Jeff. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And if you like the show... Please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.